good morning and welcome to episode 478 of effectively wild the daily podcast from baseball prospectus presented by the baseball reference play index i am ben Lindbergh, joined by sam miller hi hi how are you okay great have you read the story about the diamondbacks front office no this is how this is how late night talk show hosts start their show did you hear that story about the uh thing and then you say no i didn't and yeah I t- and I t- and then i tell you um you've got, you've got like uh slides ready <laughs> right i've got those little black cards with a something glued on the front of them which seems like a really primitive <laughs> way to to display things on are tv gonna, yeah are you gonna toss this to a man on the street that you conducted <laughs> earlier today i might i might um so the thing about the diamondbacks front office there's a story by our pal nick picoro at AZ Central Sports about how Tony Russa is still still learning what his job is. He has had this nebulous job for a month or so, and it sounds, and maybe he's just not conveying what he does very well, but it sounds like he doesn't really know what he is doing uh, in this job or where he fits in in the, the hierarchy. Uh, he says... I think the most critical thing is this job has never been done anywhere, so I've never done this job. So we're a month or whatever it is into it, and I've done it every day, and my responsibilities are getting more crystallized in my own mind. You simplify it. It's who who's playing for the Diamondbacks, and secondly, it's how they play. That's kind of the responsibility that I've been given, and I'm going to share it with people in the organization. We're going to look at who's playing, and we're going to coach them. And then he talks about the, the trade deadline. He says the, the delineation of responsibilities is not crystal clear here or beyond here. So he says uh, if teams want to, want to trade with the Diamondbacks, with the trade deadline approaching, he says if they're interested in talking to the Diamondbacks, they can call either one of us, that's either him or, or Kevin Towers, and we're going to talk to each other. As a matter of fact, there was one gentleman who called and left a message for both of us, which I think is the smartest thing. But we're going to communicate, and we are communicating. Um, it's That's, interesting because you know you get to a, a certain point in your career if you're as successful as Tony Larusa has, and uh, you get a job with a you know with an organization, and there's really you're sort of in a position where you can you know, you can kind of dictate your, your terms. You don't have to take any jobs and most people would be thrilled to have you around, uh, or at least a lot of people would. And so you can go one of two ways. One is you can be absolute power. Mm-hmm. You can come in and basically say, I ain't, I ain't doing this unless I have all the power. And then you could come in and you could just, you know, fire everybody if you want, or, um, you know, build chocolate fountains in the lobby, do anything you want. The other way is that you could come in and say, well, I'll come in and I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll mosey around, uh, imparting wisdom, but you know, I'll come in when I want to. Uh, you know, I, uh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna work. I'm certainly not gonna work weekends. I'm, I'm not gonna do anything that would ever, uh, you know, be real responsibility and could come down on me. I'm, I'll just be the sage uh, that you pay more money than you would think a sage would get paid mm-hmm. to dispense wisdom um, with as little impact on my life as possible. And when you can do one or the other, basically, when you're Tony Larusa. When you have that power, most people don't get those choices, but he gets both of those choices. Um, and when he came in, I think 
that we all sort of assumed it was the former. And but I'm not sure that that was necessarily clear. Mm-hmm. It, it was sort of hinted that he would have a lot of authority. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but, you know, authority is not the same as responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I, like I said, I haven't I didn't read Nick's article. Nick maybe uh, maybe answered those questions or um, uh, maybe I'm maybe right now I'm, you know, it's like I'm one season behind on Game of Thrones and <laughs> saying things that are dumb. Uh, mm-hmm. You're ahead of me. Mm-hmm. So I have to wait for Nick's article to go on Netflix, unfortunately. <laughs> right. Yeah, I I don't know. I don't know whether those questions were answered. It doesn't seem like doesn't seem like they have answered them themselves at this point. But doesn't sound doesn't sound great. Not um, great that you have to uh, get the word out through a newspaper reporter <laughs> to the other teams that they should CC you. I know. It, this this podcast is better organized it sounds like than the Diamondbacks front office. Like they should they should create an email address like yeah, shared email address. Decisions Although, at diamondbacks.com and then We still yeah, we still occasionally get email though meant for KG and, and Park. So so <laughs> I guess maybe while. there's there's the risk that they'd be getting like Josh Burns's uh <laughs> you know, like a a brochure from REI because Josh Burns ordered something. <laughs> maybe so. Maybe they can figure out what their roles are by counting up the number of people who start their emails, Kevin and Tony, or Tony and Kevin. And that'll that'll tell them who's in charge. Anyway, go trade for Ryan Webb and Matt Albers. <laughs> right. They should they should have a closer by committee with those two guys. I would love that. All right. Well, hi Ben. That's our opening monologue. I hope hope the studio audience laughed. So now we are <laughs> now we are doing an email show. Many of you sent us emails at podcast at baseballperspectives.com. We will answer some of them. Let's start with uh, this one from from Josh, who says Ben and Sam, comma Sam and Ben. The, the well, no, wait, <laughs> just a second. Now, when people address us as Ben and Sam, Sam and Ben, which comes first? The Ben uh, and yeah, Sam. Yeah, the Ben and Sam, Sam still, the ben and Sam still came I know first. You were, I know you were trying to take this up a level, but you answered nothing. <laughs> Josh says, I watch, most, I watch most Blue Jays games, so I've been watching Brett Lurie the last few years. It seems every game or so, especially in the last calendar year, he makes at least one spectacular-looking play. But when you examine the defensive stats, he's certainly above average, but not elite. Obviously, there's some bias here, but my question is more general. Is it more likely that defensive plays that look spectacular simply look good but are not necessarily good plays, or is it possible that being athletic enough to compensate for poor positioning, for instance, is undervalued? So I guess that's kind of two two separate questions. Um, when you when you see a play that looks spectacular, are you confident that you can tell that it actually was spectacular and not? A product of poor positioning, for instance. Um, and does that differ by depending on your vantage point, whether you're watching on TV or you're watching at the park? Well, you you'll <clears throat> unless you are really really in tune to the team and to everybody in the league, you're never going to be able to say whether the positioning was was poor or not. I mean, there's a reason that that guy was standing there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there was. Or at least the the default assumption is there is a reason that guy was standing there. 
who's standing there because that's where they determined the batter was slightly more likely to hit it. And if a ball doesn't go there, that's not you know an indictment of the positioning um, because a lot of balls that a guy who is slightly more likely to hit in one direction uh, hits are not in that actual direction. So, um, so I would say as far as positioning, no, I, I would I would never make any conclusions about positioning uh, about a player's ability to position uh, on my own. Um, I if I were really dedicated to a team in a way that I'm not right now. Um, and you know, really haven't ever been. I might decide at the end of the year that I had an idea on it, uh, mm-hmm. but otherwise, I would I would just trust that that's something that only advanced metrics can pick up. Mm-hmm. And um, and even that, I would be you know I, I, I don't know. I, uh, yeah, I would say that that's something that only advanced metrics could be could pick up and, and wouldn't necessarily be um, all that easy to isolate. Um, as for the other parts, I don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I can see the replay and, and everything, I feel you know okay, kind of assessing how a player looked. But no, mm-hmm. generally, if it looks good, I assume it was good. You can see through. Sometimes there's a like, there's extra motion that makes it look good that you can see through. So there are certainly plays where a player will do something that looks acrobatic, but you know, particularly upon reviewing it, you can see that. You know there there was, you know, there was flash that wasn't necessary. Uh, there was a you know sort of a the, the player had slightly more time than you might have concluded based on his ending position, that sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, generally, if I see a play that I think, wow, how did he make that? Um, I give him credit for it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it, I mean, it does seem like this could be an area of opportunity, especially once the new tracking data comes out where teams could uh, identify guys who who are not good at positioning but are good at everything else. And uh, if, if such guys exist, if there are guys like that, I don't know how many there are. I mean, I wonder what the range in positioning talent is because... Uh, you would think that if there were a guy who were not naturally good at positioning, a team would notice that and would instruct him where to stand, as we sometimes see coaches do or players do to other players. So I don't know actually how much of an opportunity there is here, but if there were a player who were just terrible at positioning but good at everything else and was athletic and had a quick first step and could could run far, great range, then you could... You could see that with the the new MLB advanced media data that that is coming out soon, and you could take that guy and and position him well, and then suddenly you'd have an above average defender who, according to the the zone based metrics, was not an above average defender. So I don't know whether whether there's really an opportunity to leverage that, or whether teams are already too aware of that, or teams have already corrected for players' natural deficiencies in positioning but but that's something that people could possibly look into um well last week we we had a question about all-star voting why teams devote the effort they do to driving votes to trying to get fans to vote for their players and i wondered whether teams had done any research into the economic benefits of having an all-star or or having a a high-profile all-star vote drive. I emailed the the Brewers about this because they seem to be the most enthusiastic about this. 
creating videos and and trying to get everyone to vote for their players. And Tyler Barnes, who was their VP of communications, got back to me and I had asked whether there were was any specific research they had done, whether they attached any sort of dollar value to this. And it doesn't sound like they they have, at least that they were willing to tell me. He said, we do put a great deal of effort into activating all-star game voting, activating all-star game voting, both online and in person at Miller Park. While we haven't specifically quantified the value of having a player voted in as an all-star, there is without a doubt a reward for all parties involved. First, we know that the players appreciate the effort, especially when the fan vote results in one of them being elected as a starter. We also know that fans in Wisconsin enjoy the opportunity to be engaged in the process as we see the evidence over and over again. This is not one of baseball's larger markets, but fans here have demonstrated that they can and will support the Brewers at a high level on par with virtually any other market, large or small. And that becomes a source of pride for fans and their organization. So um, sort of sort of nebulous, but um, yeah, I mean, there's probably something to it. If I were if I were in charge of a team's marketing, I I would probably do the same sort of thing. I might want to want to see if I could attach any kind of research and data to it in case it turned out that that we were wasting lots of time and money here but but it it probably makes sense i mean look if you did what there is no research in the world that would convince you not to do this it is it, it is inconceivable that there would be research that would tell you that it's not cool to have a player from your team make the all-star game and to have all your fans like enjoying the things that you're doing Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was thinking of it as like a an opportunity cost or something, but I guess your marketing people are hired to market. So what else would they be doing? Yeah, I mean, you could, you might do you some could, research into whether marketing. Works. Yes, you could fire your whole marketing department. But okay, uh, this question comes from Justin. When David Price came off the DL in 2013, you could tell he had a new approach. He came to throw strikes, like a lot of strikes, and he started throwing. He started forcing contact or forcing strikeouts. And since coming off the disabled list, his strikeout rate is way up. This season, Price is still doing it, but you can tell scouting reports have his opponents more prepared. And now Phil Hughes is riding on the same train. Uh, As we've discussed on this podcast, we devoted a whole episode to to Phil Hughes, and he's throwing many more strikes than he ever has before. He's not walking anyone. So Justin wants to know, why isn't everyone doing this? Is it as simple as they can't throw strikes? What kind of stuff other than great control makes a pitcher successful with this plan? And three, it's obvious that this new version of Phil Hughes is better than the old, and it doesn't seem to be just park factors. Is the new version of David Price more valuable than the old? So uh, is there anything that stands out to you as saying that either why guys don't throw more strikes? I guess maybe... I don't know. I speculated with Hughes that if his his swinging strike rate or his chase rate wasn't that great, if he wasn't wasn't getting guys to chase outside the zone, then throwing pitches outside the zone wasn't really benefiting him very much. So maybe that's part of it. If you're if you're not getting guys to chase, then maybe there is more incentive for you to just throw pitches in the strike zone because at least you at least you might get a called strike. Um, whereas if you throw it outside the strike zone, you might not get hit as hard, but you'll just walk everyone and you'll put yourself in unfavorable counts. And then eventually you'll have to come into the zone and then you'll get 
clobbered because the hitter will be expecting it. So maybe that's it. I don't know. I mean, Hughes was never before a real control artist. Like we never, we never really thought that Phil Hughes had this in him. Um, so I don't know whether we can, I mean, would anyone have pointed to Phil Hughes and said if he wanted to, he could, he could have the lowest walk rate in the American league. He could just walk people like Cliff Lee walks people. I kind of, kind of came out of nowhere. I don't know whether it's a, a mechanical thing or just completely a mindset thing, but it doesn't seem like it's something a lot of guys could could do automatically, at least not without getting hit hard. But I don't know, that would be that would be my my guess that maybe it would make sense for guys who don't have swing and miss stuff outside the strike zone. So it seems like there's a lot of guys who I mean Hughes and Price are definitely um the 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 two kind of breakout cliff lees of the year mm-hmm. um and but it seems like there are a lot of guys who have real you know really incredible strikeout to walk ratios and some of them like price uh who's you know not having a very good year for him well yeah uh, that, I, I guess i mean that was question three we're maybe. not there yet hang okay, on okay 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 mm-hmm. uh and and brandon mccarthy who has a um you know really good strikeout to walk ratio and uh you know a lot of really bad uh, surface numbers. And so I, I, I started to, I had this, I, this sort of general impression that, um, that FIPS uh, aren't correlating to ERAs as well as they used to. Cause mm-hmm. there are like these, like, as we've talked about, there are these sort of FIPS superstars, like the kind of Joe Blanton yeah. mold of guys who just throw strikes. Um, and so by doing that can basically put together pretty good strikeout to walk ratios. Um, but, they uh, they get burned for other reasons. And so I looked, I actually uh, had this hypothesis, so I looked, I took the FIPS and ERAs of, you know, like everybody who'd pitched like 80 innings or whatever um, every year over the past, you know, X number of years. And uh, it turned out to be a completely wrong hypothesis. There's the correlation between ERA and FIP um, is, a, you know, basically exactly what it has been. Mm-hmm. There are, uh, as, a, as a whole... Uh, the the league's ERAs and FIPS are you know basically holding to each other for predictive value as well as they ever did. So that mm-hmm. sort of surprised me. Um, but yeah, so price price talking about price because price uh, is having by you know by some, by some measures mm-hmm. uh, like by sort of the kind of I mean I'm a Koji Uehara junkie so in my mind he's having the greatest year of his career and he's my favorite player to watch right now and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and all that he's also having like the worst year of his career mm-hmm. uh probably May, i guess his rookie year was was probably worse um and it's interesting because his rookie year he struck out 1.9 batters per walk and had an era plus of 98 and this year he's struck out 10.2 batters per mm-hmm. walk which I, I think is the second highest or maybe the third highest in history um and he's got a 100 era plus so uh he's essentially the same there have never been two more different pitchers in style than David Price now and David Price in 2009. And there have essentially never been two more similar pitchers in terms of like raw output uh, mm-hmm. than David Price now and David Price in 2009. And that's really interesting. And, um, you know, I mean, he, he's allowing a ton of home runs. And so that one question that you always have with the guy who allows a lot of home runs is – whether he's unlucky on fly balls, mm-hmm. it's it's only been you know 
16 starts, it's probably not quite soon enough to say that he is definitely more prone or extremely prone to the long ball. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I mean, if you were um, if you were a person who was only uh, loosely um, engaged to sabermetrics, mm-hmm. you would probably be looking at this and going, well, that didn't work. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess... I guess Moneyball was dumb, um, and I don't know if that's I don't know if that's right or, or wrong yet with Price. We don't really know, but I mean, mm-hmm. clearly this is this is he's the most curious case of a pitching line in baseball right now, right? Yeah, and right. Gabe Kapler tweeted one of his handwritten, photographed notes that he that he cleverly uses to get around the Twitter 140 character limit about Price and how we should stop the nonsensical narrative that David Price is having a down year. He cited his career-high strikeout percentage, his career-low walk percentage, his FIP, which is as low as it's ever been, his ex-FIP, which is fantastic. And he says his BABIP is higher and his his home run per fly ball rate is higher. And so maybe those things will normalize and maybe the the more sustainable aspects of his performance are what we should be looking at. But yeah, so it, it seems... That's, I mean, the, those things are the sort of the classic, right. the classic flaws of the FIP All-Star, though, too. Yes. I mean, so... I'm, I'm pro-Price. I, I mean, I'm definitely on Team David Price. Mm-hmm. But um, I could certainly see why somebody would say, you know, he's, he's gone too far. I mean, I haven't looked at him enough to say that he has or hasn't. But I could certainly mm-hmm. see why somebody would say, you know, yeah, if you, if you do nothing but pound the strike zone, you'll never walk anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, if you do it, the strikeouts are slightly harder to explain, but I mean, if you do it the right way, you can probably you know miss a lot of bats because guys will take a lot of pitches um, to let you get ahead in the count. Um, but you know, if you're, if you're too dedicated to this idea, if you don't work the edges, if you don't work the corners, um, if you don't waste pitches, um, then what happens is you end up giving up more line drives and home runs. I mean, that's a totally plausible cause and effect hypothesis of how pitching works. Mm-hmm. So, uh, if I, you know, if you had told me that David Price had uh, increased his, you know, had gone from a guy who struck out eight and walked three per nine to a guy who struck out ten and walked one per nine, well, I would think one of two things had happened: either he had uh, gotten insanely better at with his stuff, uh, or he was pitching differently. And he hasn't gotten insanely better with his stuff. He's just pitching differently. And so, so when you know that he's just pitching differently, well, you can start thinking about what are the consequences of pitching differently? What are the, what are the unintended and what are the intended consequences of this? And um, the intended is that, you know, he gets more, he doesn't put guys on base and he's a different kind of pitcher. He's efficient. But the unintended, of course, is that there's probably more pitches in the middle of the zone than he intends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he is, he's getting a career high uh, chase rate, which I don't know whether he's throwing a different selection of pitches outside the strike zone or whether it's that he's not throwing as many outside the strike zone and so guys aren't prepared for it. Um, he's also getting, it looks like, a career-low percentage of contact on pitches in the strike zone, so he's missing bats that way too. But, I mean, it seems like this should be testable, right? We should be able to tell is is home run per fly ball rate correlated with whatever walk rate zone rate something right i mean that would show up it seems well, like yeah ben if i and if i know you when i wake <laughs> up in the morning you're gonna have emailed me a link to your article and i'm gonna edit it and it'll be up at about 8 30 eastern that might very well happen <laughs> i've been meaning i've been sort of 
half committed to the idea of having David Price as a topic for like the last month and a half, but I just didn't think we could really do a full episode. Mm-hmm. So uh, huzzah to the person <laughs> who asked this question and got us a nice 13-minute chunk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty good. Um, okay, uh, let's do one more before play index segment. This one comes from John who says an extension of uh, one of our topics from last week and our discussion of Tony Gwynn versus Maddox and, and Gwynn's, Gwynn's incredible success against Maddox. Are there any batter pitcher matchups that demand changing to them on MLB TV? What are your top three? So the question really is, we, we, we already discussed our... Our MLB TV must-watch players, the guys that we would change channels to see if we knew that they were coming up or pitching. So is the appeal of a batter-pitcher matchup solely the the sum of the appeals of the two players? Or is there a multiplier effect? Is there some sort of exponential uh, increase in appeal when one guy faces another guy? I would say, I would say in most cases... I my interest in the at bat is is proportional to my interest in the hitter, just just independent of who the pitcher is, and in the pitcher, independent of who the pitcher is. Because I don't know, I don't I don't think a whole lot. Maybe I don't think enough about whether certain pitchers are good matchups for certain hitters, and vice versa. Whether one guy is, you know, his main weapon is a curveball, and this guy is a great curveball hitter, that that kind of thing. Maybe I should pay more attention to that. But for the most part, I I don't really think of that so much. So unless there were a unless there were one of the one of the like head to head matchup stats that are particularly interesting that we've talked about. Um, what's the what's the one that we always talk about? Ray Durham and Mariano Rivera. Uh, well, yeah, that one. Paul, that was... uh, Goldschmidt and Lincecum. Yes, right. uh, Romo and Ricky Weeks is a favorite. Uh-huh. Yes, that's the, the one. Show. So so yeah. So if it's one of those and we're we're interested in finding out whether one of these guys actually owns the other guy. And when we see one more plate appearance, we'll get a tiny little bit more data about that. Maybe come a little bit closer to making a decision one way or the other that increases the interest. But in general, do you find that you are particularly intrigued by any matchup? uh, No, 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 you're right. And my, I agree with everything you said. I, um, I do. I, I really love to see Bryce Harper against uh, against high velocity. I think that uh, his swing. Uh, there's something that happens visually with his swing against a, an elite fastball, and he's so fast, and uh, his bat speed is so fast um, that I I really love to see that. So I would switch over for um, you know for Harper against Kimbrel, that sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Harper against Chapman. Uh, and I mean, obviously, of course, those are those very are intriguing already, players on right, their own. Those are already intriguing yeah. players. I'm just saying that there, I would give them a little bit of a bump, even more mm-hmm. so than. Um, and otherwise, the matchups are a little bit like fun facts. If if they if there's some sort of um, you know interplay between the qualities of the two subjects, if it's you know a 20 year old pitcher against a 40 year old superstar hitter. Um, that would be interesting if they were both 20. That would be interesting, uh, that kind of a thing. Um, but generally, I agree with you, and generally I, I would say that it's um, mostly just multiplying the value of each player involved in the equation. But um, what 
uh, I have a question for you. Who is our generation's equivalent of Gwyn and Maddox? Who is who is the um, you know the hitter and the pitcher who you think of as being um, you know particular? Because the thing about Gwyn Maddox is that they both had reputations for being thoughtful, smart. Um, you know, they were playing chess to use a cliche, uh, and everybody else was playing checkers. So is there anybody in this generation who you think of the same way? Is there a possible hitter-pitcher matchup where you would want to watch, you know, 30 in a row to see how things changed? Or uh, do you even think we, like, I don't know, if I had talked to Ben Lindbergh in 95, would I even have, would we even have identified Gwyn and Maddox at that point as being mm-hmm. as special as they, you know, as they obviously were? Mm. Um, hmm. I'm trying to think of who the, who the most cerebral cerebral pitcher is or who has that reputation i I don't know i might enjoy watching someone like mark burley for instance try to survive 30 straight plate appearances against a good hitter see what he did to try to counteract the fact that he throws 85 um but has good control and can put the ball where he wants to um i don't know i'm having a hard time thinking of a, a current maddox like pitcher do you have one i don't exactly have one i mean i i like this like it's gonna sound so banal but i like watching kershaw pitch (laughs) but i mean kershaw seems to have uh seems to be more um deliberate more sort of uh intentional about what he's doing than the average pitcher Mm -hmm. Uh, and i don't know if that's actually true in the way he pitches um i i think i tend to overvalue uh, the ability to hold runners on. I think if a pitcher can hold runners on, uh, that I then transfer that to his whole game and think, well, he must be smart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he can hold runners on. Uh, but you know, Kershaw seems to me to be um, the guy who will be dissecting for a long time. Um, you know, beyond just his great stuff and his great command and his great everything, he seems like a guy who will. You know, I don't know if we'll ever actually like learn through him the value of his sequencing and all that, but we'll try. There will be a lot of people who write about it. Mm-hmm. So Kershaw and then, um, you know, Votto is sort of the classic cerebral hitter, although for all of, I don't know, I, I, I know that Votto is interesting and thoughtful and knows a lot about hitting and thinks a lot about hitting and has these weird kind of amazing things about the foul balls and the pop-ups and all that. Yeah. But when you watch him, it's like, oh, he's just swinging at the ball and trying to hit it. You know, right. he's like trying to stay within his swing and mm-hmm. put, you know, good wood on the ball. It's not like you watch him and you, you know, there's no sparkle. It's not, mm-hmm. there's nothing actually, he doesn't levitate. He's just, <laughs> he's just trying to stay back and hit the ball to left center. That's pretty much the story. Um, and maybe that's what we would have, maybe that's what I would have thought about Gwyn at the time too. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. All right. Play index? Sure. Uh, so this is a pretty this is a pretty lame one to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> but there's a reason that I decided to go with it, even though it's kind of lame. So. Um, so you don't like our listeners? No, it's not. I have a I have a small meta point to make mm-hmm. it. That's okay. All. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tonight I'm I'm looking it up. Uh, the White Sox box score tonight. Um, Alexi Ramirez went two for four. He scored two runs. He hit a double. He stole a base. Good game, right? Oh, he also walked. Uh, no, he didn't walk. Of course he didn't walk. What am I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> but he had a good game. That's a good game. Um, no doubt about it. But he also, that game, pushed him now to over 100 plate appearances in a row 
with how to run batted in. Mm-hmm. And so that got me wondering about the longest streaks without a run batted in. So I, uh, I used the streak finder to find uh, the longest game streaks without a run batted in. And uh, when it displays this, it also displays the number of at-bats they had. So it's easy enough to just click the at-bat column, sort by at-bats, and then there you have your answer. So, um, so I have the list of guys who have had 100 or more at-bats, not plate appearances. So I'm slightly cheating because I think Ramirez has like 97 at-bats or something like that. Uh, but he now has 103 plate appearances, I think. So I'm slightly cheating, but these are the guys who have 100 at-bats. So I'm just going to read them real quick, and then I'm going to ask you a question, then I'll tell you a couple things, and then I'll ask another question. <laughs> All right, so here are the guys with 100 or more at-bats since 1998 without an RBI. Mm-hmm. Chris Duffy, Sam <laughs> Fold, Miguel Cairo, Shannon Stewart, Tony Campana, Sean Burroughs, Jordan Schaefer, Will Rimes, Marco Scudero, Willie Tavares, Omar Infante, Cleet Thomas, Eric Young, Juan Pierre, Niger Morgan, Felipe Lopez, Eddie Perez, Donnie Sadler, Ramon Santiago, Mark Loretta, Andres Torres, Cesar Crespo, Tony Gwynn Jr., Ramon Santiago, Omar Vizquel as an old man, Danny Espinosa, Andy Gonzalez, Ryan Terrio, Ruben Tejada. Mm-hmm. You notice anything missing in that list? Clutch players. A single good player. Not, <laughs> yeah. not one good hitter in the group. Just I a mean, bunch of chokers. It's not, <laughs> not it's but I mean, they're all bad. They're oh, all yeah. they're yeah. all mm-hmm. they're virtually all bad. I mean, you know, a couple of men some good years here and there, some of them long careers, but not one power hitter in the group. Not es- one even close. Espinosa kinda has some Espinosa, power. Espinosa is the closest one, I would yeah. say. You could you could sort of I mean, you know, um, you know, Marco Scudero later in the year, this was 2012, early 2012. By the end of the year, he was like, uh, you know, playing like a batting champ. But mm-hmm. uh, so you could make a case that Scudero could hit. You know, Omar Infante had a good power year when he was like 20. But, you know, he's not a power guy. So anyway, these are not generally good hitters. They're not power hitters. And I find this slightly interesting because this is a totally, you know, it's a totally fluke situation. Um they like Alexi Ramirez, for instance, before his stretch started, uh, he was like among the league leaders in RBIs. He's mm-hmm. batting sixth on a you know a fifth and sixth a lot of days uh, on an American League team. He's you know he's not doing that badly during the stretch. It's not like he's mired in a seven for a hundred stretch. You know his his numbers have gone down, but he's you know not this is not the worst stretch of his career. It's a total fluke that leads to this happening. So I was surprised that there were no good hitters who fluked their way into it. And to give you an idea of how fluky this is, um, Chris Duffy, uh, who did this in 2006, at the end of 2006 and 2007, he hit 314, 375, 392 during his RBI-less stretch, which is significantly better than he hit in his career, in the rest of those two seasons. Uh, I mean, he was not a 314, 375, 392 hitter at all. And yet, for the 30, uh, 24 games in which he hit 314, 375, 392, he didn't manage to get a single RBI. And so that sort of shows you what a fluke this kind of a thing is. And yet, I was surprised that no good hitters had fluked their way onto this list. So that was, uh, that was what surprised me. So I've already told you, Duffy was the best hitter in a stretch like this. Um, uh, Let's see. Uh, the longest stretch 
without an RBI in this time period was Juan Pierre, who's 185 plate appearances or 185 at-bats. So that gives you an idea of how far Alexi Ramirez still has to go. But it is definitely something uh, that you can pay attention to. I would mm-hmm. encourage you to pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. Everybody should pay attention to this. Um, you know, some guys, their stretch uh, lasted three years because they were that bad. But most of them, it was just uh, you know a couple, you know, basically a month when everything went against them. Uh, and um, I was sort of hoping that I would find a guy who had no runs and no RBIs in the stretch <laughs> this long. Uh, that didn't happen. And in fact, uh, the long there's only been in this entire same time period only one guy, uh, Humberto Quintero, I believe, is the one guy has had a streak of a hundred bats or longer uh, without a run. Which um, slightly interesting because mm-hmm. you don't really think about it, but you're much more likely to score a run than you are to drive in a run in any given plate appearance. But yet you're at the end of the year, you sort of have the same number because you can drive in two at once, and mm-hmm. or three at once, or four at once, and um, you can only score one. And so uh, I don't know. That's something I hadn't really thought about. But anyway, the reason that I went forward with this and I bring it up today, besides giving some something everybody something to watch in white Sox games in coming mm-hmm. games is that is this so the rbi we don't care about the rbi you don't care about the rbi i don't care about the rbi it is a uh it is a besmirched statistic it is outdated uh nobody cares so um yet and yet there is this weird way that the trajectory of the rbi in popular culture and the trajectory of the pitcher win uh, and the trajectory of the save uh, goes down, while at the same time, the ability to do searches like this and t- for anybody to have these statistics at their fingertips at any given moment and to really, you know, uh, uh, be Elias essentially mm-hmm. is going up, and it l- so it lifts all stats up mm-hmm. with it, and so in this weird way, Alexi Ramirez um, plays in an era where. Nobody would care about an RBI list streak, and yet he's the only one who plays in an era where it would be noticed at all. I didn't, I didn't discover Alexi Ramirez's RBI list mm-hmm. streak. Some White Sox beat writer did and tweeted it out, and that guy uh, probably had play index. And <laughs> uh, so I was um, sort of wondering, I guess, that the question I was having, I was, I was thinking when I when I was thinking about Alexi Ramirez and his streak. I was wondering, is he is he the last guy for whom this will be acknowledged? Is he the last guy whose RBI list streak will merit a mention? Or is it just the opposite? Is it only beginning? Are we going to pay more attention to RBIs and saves and, and wins in the future than we ever have just because we pay more attention to all stats? It, mm-hmm. Will there ever be a death to the RBI or the win or the save? When we have so much information at our fingertips, is it, are we doomed by our own advanced um, awareness? Yeah, probably. I mean, a lot of people still care about those stats, still think they're meaningful. More more people who follow baseball closely think that than than not. I would guess still. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's. There's, I'm still. I mean, I'm glad that those stats are recorded. I'm glad that we can look them up in part because of this kind of thing. Like this is a, this is a cool stat. It's it's trivia. Doesn't really tell us anything about Alexei Ramirez's, you know, ability to hit in the clutch or even his ability as a player. 
but it's it's interesting. One of the nice things about baseball is that we have hundred years, over a hundred years of data that we can do these sort of searches, and we can say this is the first time that's happened since X year, and it's it's cool. It connects you to to players of a previous generation and fans of a previous generation, and I enjoy it. Just take it for for what it is. Like I wouldn't I wouldn't see that stat and say oh RBI get out of here like we discredited that stat a while ago I would say that's that's a cool stat I enjoyed that stat so so yeah maybe that that will that will prop up these stats that we have discredited keep them alive keep them in the national consciousness just because they've been around forever so do you think if uh, if our if our grandchildren are doing their podcast together uh, in 45 years or whatever mm-hmm. um, and some somebody has a streak like this, and they bring it up in the play index search. Will they refer to it as a as an RBI list streak, or will we just say, will will our grandkids just say, well, he's gone forty five games or whatever without a run scoring hit? Will we just describe it as a run scoring hit instead of a stat? Will we describe it as the thing that didn't happen or did happen instead of actually putting capital letters <laughs> at the front of each word? And putting it and describe and you know calling it a stat. No, probably not. Because if we if we started referring to it as a run scoring hit, then someone would turn it into RSH. So <laughs> it's just easier to talk about it that way. So I would I would actually prefer I I would think that somebody would probably turn it into a uh, R lowercase U S H <laughs> and just because everybody it seems like everybody who follows baseball loves rush <laughs> you know right. yeah because getty lee loves baseball he does love baseball yeah mm. that's true well, i'm actually not that surprised that a good hitter has not had a streak that long because the the key to not having that streak is to drive yourself in right is to hit a home run because that's not that's not dependent on whether you come up with guys on base or you come up first in the inning or third of the inning. All these things that can vary over 100 at-bats and you might just not have a whole lot of opportunities to drive guys in. And it varies based on the lineup, the team you're in. I would guess that most of these at-batless streaks came in in lousy offenses that just didn't put a lot of guys on. But if you're a hitter who hits home runs, then none of those things matters. And if you're if you're a good hitter, then you will almost certainly hit a home run at some point in every hundred at bat sample. So uh, you almost couldn't you almost couldn't be a good hitter and make that make that group. It would yeah, be difficult. I think that's an that's an interesting point. The way I was thinking of it was that if you do a if you look at the longest hitless streaks, for instance, just of at bats without a hit. You'll find good players on there. You know, Joe mm-hmm. Morgan, I think, had like an 0 for 48 or something, and Josh Donaldson just had like an 0 for 37 or something. But that's really only measuring one thing. Did you get a hit or did you not get a hit? And as you point out, getting an RBI can happen in a lot of different ways, and you basically need somebody who is disadvantaged in all those different ways. So doesn't bat, you know, probably at the, you know, in the middle of an order, doesn't, you know, have the ability to hit a home run. Um, so there's a, and isn't generally good. And so all these things have to kind of conspire. And so you're really sort of dodging RBIs in this scenario. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I think you're right. That makes mm-hmm. sense. Good point. Okay. Uh, so please support our sponsor and, and gain the ability to do cool queries yourself by going to baseballreference.com. Also Subs- kind of, kind of lame ones. <laughs> Some kind of lame ones every now and then. Not everyone is brilliant. 
but that's that's the fault of the play indexer, not the play index. So uh, go to go to baseballreference.com. Uh, not that I'm saying anything about you, but just other people. Uh, use the coupon code BP to subscribe. One year subscription, discounted price of thirty dollars. If you use that coupon code BP, please do let Baseball Reference know that you're listening and and treat yourself. Uh, all right, let's wrap up with a couple quick ones. This one is from Matt Trueblood. He says, "Why are Major League Baseball clubhouses so often morose after games?" It's not universal, but it seems that the majority of post-game interviews and pressers are almost funereal. Funereal? Is that how you pronounce that? Yeah. Reporters ask questions quietly, gingerly, and respondents sound defensive, but also often solemn or even depressed. Whose fault is this? Are players and coaches needlessly consumed with the outcome of every single game? Or are writers taking it all too seriously or what? seems like this is one industry where enthusiasm and joviality should rule the day, but it just isn't so why so there's uh there's a question i don't have any idea that's a really good question he's Uh right there's i mean i if you could survey players and and this is i assume mostly referring to a a losing clubhouse i mean if you're winning clubhouse you are in better mood you have the the music on not that not that well but but even those i mean even those interviews there it's not as though i mean (laughs) they wouldn't but it's not as though they're dousing each other with champagne i mean it's right. it's it's very like businesslike and you know they, you answer your questions the or the player answers his questions they they usually answer it in i mean a pitcher usually will answer the questions in almost the same tone whether he wins or loses it's a pretty and it's mm-hmm. a pretty chillaxed tone maybe that's unwritten rules maybe that's an extension of not bat flipping is not being too jovial in the clubhouse after you beat the other team but um but you, I mean, they they do douse each other with champagne when the game is important. So maybe it's just a product of each game not mattering all that much. Although you would then expect that that the losing clubhouse would would not be all that upset because each game, each loss doesn't mean all that much. So it it seems like it's mostly a a peer pressure thing. You're you're expected to look sad because you lost. I mean, some players are extremely competitive they are legitimately upset maybe they had a bad game maybe they lost in a particularly heartbreaking fashion but i would i would guess that if you were to survey every player in the clubhouse and get honest answers from them that their their actual mood wouldn't be all that different from its normal state yeah I think that the one thing also is that when you see the 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 scrum interviewing the starting pitcher uh, what you don't appreciate is that that like 22 of the 25 players have already left. Like that's an empty locker room. Yeah. You know, they just don't hang around. And mostly, I I mean, mostly I know the Angels locker room, and the Angels locker room opens later than any other locker room in a clubhouse in the in the sport. I mean, they they keep it closed longer than any other clubhouse in the sport. They flout the rules, the regulations. In fact. Um, and so they, they're really empty usually by the time you get in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's this sort of weird, like everybody wants to go home kind of feel to it. The, the reporters want to go home. I mean, the reporters have a lot, especially at night games, they have deadlines. Uh, they're down there, they're down there to get their quote as efficiently as possible. Mm-hmm. And so there's not, the, the, it does not exist to provide a scene. It exists to provide 
the quote that you know he's going to say and that, you know, if like he, he's, he's got one hole basically in his story and mm-hmm. he needs to get it filled. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you sort of appreciated how quiet the rest of the clubhouse is by that point, usually just because it's empty, then it makes a little more sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I've starred a couple other good questions that, that we will get to perhaps next week. Please send us more at podcast at Please join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. Now with a over 1,520 members and you occasionally lurking on your wife's account. <laughs> I, I, you know, when you, when you blew my cover, <laughs> I, I thought, yeah, that's karma for my almost daily mention of Astro Lounge. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So I, I would. Which you still listen to. Yeah, I, I haven't lately because we've been using it so much on the podcast. I haven't had to, but but I, I will still habitually listen to it. Uh, so please join the Facebook group. It's a good group. Lots of lots of smart, funny listeners in there having excellent discussion about baseball. And please rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Just type in the name of the podcast. Click the number of stars you think we deserve. Leave a line or two if you feel so inclined, but helps helps other people find the podcast. And that is it. We will be back with another show tomorrow.